I am so glad uh, to be in this series, to be with you this morning. Um, just a quick highlight before I get into the message today. These are our gen cards. They're available on each table. We really do want you to fill these out, whether you're a first time with us or whether you're someone who's like, Generations Church is my church, this is my church family, fill one of these out because we really do, we, while we communicate throughout the week, we also want to be able to track prayer requests with you, we want to be able to follow up with you, and maybe during the, our gathering, you're prompted to take a next step, and these are ways at which we facilitate that. You can even sign up for events and stuff like that, like when Jonathan does the announcements and makes a funny joke and inspires you to sign up for an event, that you can do that on this card, and so... Uh, we hope that you use that, pick those up, along with our teaching time notes as you walk into the room. So we're in this series called Passing Down the Faith. The whole role of the church, the, the, the role, the church as a whole, young or old, has a role to play in passing down the faith. This is to both children and to adult children, <laughs> to adults who maybe still act like kids. No, I, we all have a role to pa in helping pass down the faith, young or old. And we have relationships with people who have questions about what it means to be a Christian. In fact, uh, I did this little experiment this week where when I got together with a group of guys, one of the questions I asked is, what is the main message of Christianity? And it was fascinating to go around the table and hear all kinds of different versions of that answer. Some of the people around the table um, just would share different thoughts, and, and we'd kind of banter back and forth. But it's amazing to me how we can be around church, we can be around things of faith, and then when asked a pointed question, so what's the main message of Christianity in a single line or in a couple sentences, there was some struggle, frankly, at times, to come up with a sentence or a message that could then be passed on. And I'm not trying to throw those guys under the bus, but I, I think the reality is, is when we're put on the spot like that, we're, we're not quite as prepared as we might or could or maybe even should be. Because the reality is, as we live our lives, as we go to work, as we head to the gym, as we hang out with people, while our actions portray a version of Christianity that we believe, we also want to be able to share a profound truth that can shape someone's life. See, it's both verbal and nonverbal, both in, in words and in deeds. And the message of Christianity, uh, as I understand it, the, the sentence that helps me portray that to someone else is that God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation specifically humanity, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That is the message. And that empowers us, and there's a lot of implications that come out of that. So when we gather together, we're to resubmit and to, to that truth, that reality, to get, allow that to seep into our hearts and then be prepared and equipped so that when people interact with us throughout our daily lives, they see and hear that message. 
And it truly takes a multi-generational church to build a lifelong follower of Jesus, to build someone who hears that truth and learns and experiences how to live that truth in their everyday life, to chase that down to how does it impact my finances? How does it impact my relationships? How does it affect my work when no one's really looking, when my boss isn't looking over my shoulder? How does it impact my speech? So as we think about this series, it's really about resourcing and make sure the church understands the main message and we make some shifts to, to reject some just cultural influences and actively choose some, some patterns and some ways to help us pass on faith, that message, that lifestyle effectively. Previously on, the first week of the series, uh, Ruth and I shared some stories about how we've seen this expressed both well and not well within our own lives. And last week, we took at our first like shift, a shift from destination thinking to direction, to the, the thought that if we could just get someone to a place, then they would be good. But really, if we can get people focused on Jesus repeatedly, routinely, over the long haul, that is what will produce change in someone's life. Today, our second shift is for really, in some ways, the person who comes alongside with helping that directional shift. And it's the shift that I'll call today, for shift from going from sage to guide. If I were to have you grab a piece of paper and sketch a portrait of the person next to you, how might this play out? There you go. Bob's proud. He's like, he's like if I sketch the person next to me, I, I'd be doing pretty good. Just So just think about that. If I ask you, hey, teaching time notes on the back, start to sketch out someone. Some of you right now, even as I say that, you're like, you're preparing your apologies already. You're like, I'm, I'm going to be, it's going to be a stick figure. I'm sorry. I'm embarrassed. Oh, like, this is such a masterpiece, they said sarcastically. Um, What's interesting, though, is if I was to do that same activity with children, you know what would happen? Most likely, they would proudly show off their masterpiece. Think about the things that they draw in class or at school, and they come home ready to show you. And we know the quality is all over the place, but their excitement and confidence radiates. See, whether it's my children are drawing stick figures of me with my pointy hair or my hat or hugging one another, or there's watercolors, they always have a level of confidence. Pablo Picasso said this, that every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once we grow up. When you're a child, you're not afraid of what people might think or whether you'll be judged or graded, which is precisely why the 30-second drawing turns out so differently among adults and children. Think back to when you were a child. If your teacher explained the difference between a noun and a verb, you probably did not respond by asking them to, to prove it. Most likely, your life experience was not brought into the learning equation much either. You were a child, and you needed to learn some fundamentals, some tools, some basics. But as we progress through time, our experience comes into play. 
our fears, our insecurities, taking what we have learned and figuring out, does it work in the real world? The teachers, when we're kids, are often in control. They were the experts. They determine what needs to be taught. But the fact is that as we grow, adults learn much different than children. True learning comes at the intersection of curiosity, truth, and our experience. Taking the truth that we hope every person seeks out and finds, because there is truth out there, but then taking that, internalizing it, and then living it out and figuring out what works. And truth, followership of Jesus, does work. See, church, if we want to help people become lifelong followers of Jesus, we must make the shift from thinking about a sage on a stage and how they're going to bring about life change to being a guide on the side. Now, I realize that puts me right in the crosshair. That means that even some former function of what I'm doing here won't produce lasting life change. Me, Kyle, myself being up here speaking. But it is the news, the gospel message, which when that penetrates the heart, that changes something in us. So then we respond. But I'm not with you 24-7. But you have friends, peers, uh, acquaintances that you can lean on and go to. And so are they someone as you are leaning on and figuring out how does this truth about Jesus' love for me, God sending Jesus to rescue me, start to show itself in my life. We find that we need people who are sitting beside us on a metaphorical bench attacking the problem together rather than someone who is always, let's say this way, preaching at them. Well, I understand that that puts me at somewhat of a weird place standing up here doing that very thing. What my hope is is that I can communicate truth for you so that then as we live together in community, as you hear that truth, then you get to walk that out with people. The problem is, is not that, that the sage on the stage is wholly bad, but we think it's the only and the best option. And reality is it's when we take that truth that we hear and start to apply that with others, their change there the rubber meets the road and starts to happen. See, God's someone who is with you on the journey. And you know the best guides. If you've ever gone on a guided tour of a museum or a hike or explored something, the best guides have a way of weaving in truth, have a way of re- like weaving in historical facts, making it entertaining, and then when you come at the end of it, you're like, man, I, I went on this long pathway. I've got new knowledge. I even got some principles, and it was kind of enjoyable. Yeah. See, the best guides are those who, who are internalizing the truth of Jesus, learning it, letting it seep in them, and then being able to pass it on in ways that are practical, tangible. Amen. Not just you should do this, but come along with me and let me show you this. Some of your best bosses aren't the one who told you how to do the job. They showed you how to do the job and then trusted you to do it. Some ways in in Christianity, what we do is we, we tell people truths and then we leave them to fend for themselves. 
My hope for generations is that as we seek truth, as you hear truth, who Jesus is, what he has done, and how that changes your life, that we don't just say it, but we also show it. Not from a, you do your life over there, and I'll do my life over here. But it's shoulder by shoulder, side by side, together, working out the things. I think at some level when Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, this is what he's talking about. Proving your salvation in everyday life is when you put your trust in Jesus and you make sure that he is your sustenance. He's your sole provider for your satisfaction. You don't need control or external pleasure. Why? Because he gives you the peace and the joy to keep going and you get to live that out. Not by yourself, but with others. If you're a parent, chances are you've caught yourself saying or doing something to your children that your parents used to say or do to you. I've caught myself doing that. The other day, I just started counting. All right, one, two, the kids were in trouble, and I started counting. I'm like, why? Like, that, that doesn't even really work. Like, at the end of the day, it doesn't really work. But I noticed the reason why I was doing it is because that was in my subconscious, something that I had been raised with. And it's not really even the best method of discipline when I start to step back and analyze it. Um, Ruth and I often agree, but we still do it because it's our natural bias at times. We click into that autopilot mode. We tap into something that we didn't realize was quite there. Our natural bias is to teach the way that we've been taught and lead the way that we've been led. And unless we make a conscious effort to change, we will continue to do that. So in other words, until you re-examine the way you approach developing followers of Jesus, you will naturally revert back to using the methods that others used in your development. And that's not always bad. There were good principles and practices in place. But unless you take a step back and realize why those people who influence you did what they did, you consistently hit a glass ceiling and have a hard time growing in the way you disciple and develop other followers of Jesus. Because not everyone is you. Which means we have to take that truth and help that be lived out for each of us. See, for example, if you were trying to help someone learn to trust God, that the resources you needed were already within your sphere, how might you do that? There's this great story in Matthew chapter 14 where Jesus is trying to help his disciples trust him. And so what he does is he says, hey, there's all these crowds. And in the story of Matthew, he goes, actually, I got that. Corey, let's go ahead and throw that text. I'll just, I'll just read it. It should be the Matthew chapter 14 um, passage. We'll see if it gets up there. If not, I can always read it. Oh, there we go. No, Matthew, keep going. There we go, back. There we go, back to 13. When Jesus heard about it, he withdrew from there by the boat to a remote place to be alone. When the crowds heard this, they followed him on foot from the towns. Go ahead and go to the next one. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. He had compassion on them and healed their sick. Go to the next one. When evening came, the disciples approached him and said, This place is deserted, 
it's already late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy food for themselves. Very logical. People are hungry. Like, send them home to get something to eat. They don't need to go away, Jesus told them. You give them something to eat. But we only have five loaves and two fish here, they said to him. Bring them here to me. I want to pause here. What Jesus does is he includes the disciples in God's provision. He knew he could give them something. In fact, he does. He blesses it, he breaks it, and distributes it. And there's plenty left over. But he turns to his disciples and he says, you give them something to eat. See, the miracle we think oftentimes is for the crowds. They ate and were satisfied and it was great. But in this instance, it's also for the disciples. Because in real time, when Jesus says, trust me, I and the Father are one, that I can provide for you, he includes them in that provision by saying, you give them something to eat. And their solution was sometimes like our own. And instead, he wanted them to turn to him and trust him. And Jesus isn't done. Sometimes we've got to learn the same lesson again and again, to trust that he can provide with what we already have in creative ways. So go, go the next, keep going. He commanded crowds to sit down, go up to, keep going, everyone's satisfied, full is left over. Those who were eight, 5,000. Okay, 22. He makes them then get into the boat, and he says, okay, we're going to go to the other side after he dismisses the crowds. Go to the next verse. After dismissing the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Into the night, there he was alone. Go to the next Meanwhile, the boat was already some distance from the land, battered by the waves, because the wind was against them. The disciples are out in the boat, and Jesus came towards them, walking on the sea very early in the morning. The next one. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them and said, have courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Before we go on to the next verse, just think about this scene. They just watched Jesus do something miraculous and incredible to trust him in real time, that he can take what they have and multiply it and help people be satisfied. And he was including them in that. He wanted them to learn to trust him. The very next instance, they're in the middle of the waves, out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. Waves are going, terrified. They are looking for something, for hope. And Jesus begins to walk on the water, giving them an opportunity to trust once again. And this is Peter's response. Lord, if it is you, Peter answered him, command to me and I will come out of the water. He said, come. Climbing out of the boat, Peter started walking on the water and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the strength of the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, Lord, save me. Jesus had already told Peter, don't be afraid. I'm with you. Trust me. Showing them in real time. And here Peter, after just experiencing that feeding, now has an opportunity to walk that out on water. <laughs> and what happens to Peter? He gets, he gets lost in the moment. He takes his eyes off Jesus and he drowns. But he gets one thing right. He knows there's only one that can save him. 
See, in the middle of the chaos and the uncertainty of life, when we're trying to live out our faith, if we, if we try to like start to swim in the middle of an ocean when we're drowning, we'll miss the point. We need to cry out to Jesus, for he is the one who can save. And sometimes we've got to go through a couple of those instances to practice trusting in Jesus. Some of you have gone through seasons of life where you're learning to trust Jesus. And the best thing you can do is share that story with someone else. To say, man, I I don't know how it's completely going to work out, but I am choosing to trust in this moment when life seems overwhelming, when I seem overcome. I know that I've even taken my eyes off Jesus, but I'm choosing to put my eyes back on him. See, when we're trying to help someone learn to trust God, it's real life circumstances where we can remind each other. And Jesus did that with his disciples. And I think it's pretty wise to take our cue from Jesus to practice trust for themselves. See, truth cannot be effectively, cannot be taught effectively outside of close relationships. The reason is that truth is not primarily formal. It's dynamic. The truth of the gospel becomes compelling as we see it transforming lives in the rub of the daily messy relationships. Jay Adams says this, a whole person will affect whole persons on all levels. That is the goal of developing others to follow Jesus. It involves all commitment to God. Therefore, the truth incarnated in life is the goal. Whole persons must teach whole persons. The word must be made flesh. I'm so glad that we gather together on Sundays to hear truth and to come to know it deeper, to look at the word and look at the example of Jesus. But my hope is not that we just be hearers of this, but we start to be doers in the everyday things of life, that we identify areas where we can change, where we are challenged to say, I need to open myself up to God in that way to start maybe trusting as I live in this way. See, this life context and word content for developing followers of Jesus reflects the setting of the great summary of the Israelite faith. When Moses is on the edge of the promised land, he doesn't just want them to know the law. He wants them to live the law in front of all kinds of people so that they can see and know and hear that there is a true and living God who is at work within the world. That's why it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. Israel's identity as a people was tied up with the words spoken to them by the Lord. It was God's word that constituted them as his people in Sinai. Peter Adams says the basic structure of theology of Deuteronomy is that God has spoken the command. Hear, O Israel. But the characteristic of Deuteronomy, followed by instructions, is to remember, teach, discuss, meditate, and practice the words of God. This creates a verbal spirituality, one in which the appropriate response to it is love the Lord your God with total commitment, with your total self, with your total excess. See, 
when people ask, what is the main message of Christianity? The hope is that as you live your life, they can begin to infer what that statement of truth is. That God himself came down and gave of himself for others, died on the cross to rescue and renew. And when we receive that truth and begin to live that truth, people will start to, to identify some truths about your life. Now, we, we've tried to make those accessible here at Generations. Some of you may have caught on to this. Let me, I like to kind of like pull behind the curtain. Those, that's why we do the values the way we do them. Is because we're trying to help you live biblical truth in the everyday things of life. See, when we say progress over perfection, what we're not, we're not saying is there's an excuse for immaturity or you be you and you don't have to ever change. No, progress means there's some level of change in your life. In fact, there's a way of pursuing maturity, becoming a mature follower of Jesus, but knowing that you don't have to live up to some standard. Jesus already lived that standard, but that standard, that perfection is now changing your heart so you start to look more like Jesus. So that when you show up into different spaces, when you're evaluating, was this good or not? You're not thinking, what do I get out of it? But what can I give? I'm here to contribute, to influence. You start to extend yourself in real and practical ways. When we say story over sin, it's the source of your identity. It's who God is and what he has done, not the sum total of your past, that you don't need to define yourself and your life on your own terms, that Jesus can give you an identity. And it's that story and that truth that allows you to live and actually change. Sin will be rooted out. So we talk about our values, and those were a few of them, and a way to help Make faith accessible, to put it in phrases that you can also say and share, to be an influence on others. The book of Deuteronomy, what Moses wants for the people of Israel is for the word of God to be so impressed on their heart that it comes out in the way they live life to talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. That you don't need a notepad constantly to be like, okay, what am I supposed to say in this moment? But they're so sunk in that when someone asks you, what is the main message of Christianity? Why should I follow Jesus? Will Jesus do anything in my life? That your answer may be simple, truthful and profound, but your life also backs up that truth. And that's the hope, is that our lives starts to catch up with that reality. See, Chris Wright says the law was to be the topic of ordinary conversation in ordinary homes and ordinary life, from breakfast to bedtime. This is not to denigrate the importance of formal teaching times at church, but rather to emphasize the need to bring teaching out of the pulpit and embed it in life. Just as the law defined Israel's identity and shaped her life, so the word of God, the example of Jesus is to define what we are as a church. And that process of definition occurs in the mundane setting of everyday life and relationships. The gospel word should be central to the formal meeting, and it is for us. 
It's why we sing songs. It's why we put a focus on response and communion. But it's at the heart of all we do as people of God, the way in which we live and how we relate to the world. So we must be prepared to answer those deep questions of life and faith along the road. That you don't need me to tell people what to believe. But the word of God is so sunk in deep into your heart that you are following Jesus and being changed by it that you can function as a guide along the way for them and their spiritual joining, turning back to Jesus. Unfortunately, sometimes the church doesn't always get it quite right. I don't want to read this example to, to bash the church. Jesus loves the church. He died for her. I love generations. But sometimes we get so caught up in thinking there's an answer person rather than there's a book and a spirit that provides guidance and wisdom for everyday people along the way that we miss out on incredible opportunities. So this book is actually one of the ones I've referenced from the series talking about growing young. It's about 25 or 30 years of research on youth ministry over the last yeah, 25 or 30 years. And in chapter 3, it starts out with this story. Pastor, if I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise it even before I raise it? 13-year-old Steve attended church every week with his parents. This particular Sunday, he had stayed after the worship service to ask his pastor this pressing question. The pastor replied, yes, God knows everything. Haunted by the plight of African children suffering from dire famine, Steve pulled out the Life magazine cover depicting two children tormented by starvation. He asked the logical follow-up, what does God know about this and what's going to happen to those kids? The pastor gave a similar response, Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about that. If you were Steve, would you be satisfied with the pastor's answer to the question? Steve wasn't. He walked out of his congregation that day and never worshipped at a Christian church again. The good, even remarkable news is that Steve was drawn like a magnet to the faith community and his pastor specifically for all the answers to the dilemmas that most troubled him. The bad, even tragic news is that his pastor's short-sighted response repelled him from the faith community permanently. Even more disheartening is that the pastor failed to grasp the question behind Steve's question. Similar to the young people in your congregation, is what this book's saying, Steve wasn't merely asking an existential question about the nature of suffering. Likely behind Steve's rather esoteric inquiry about children in Africa were more personal questions about life and faith. Perhaps Steve wondered why God would allow the suffering he himself had experienced in his 13 years, which included bullying at school, financial struggles at home, and most painfully being relinquished for adoption by his birth parents. As Steve was trying to make sense of the pain in our world, he wanted his pastor to understand and help him make sense of his own pain. Maybe you've heard of Steve. His last name is Jobs. Steve Jobs, the founder of CEO Inc., was a church-going teenager who wrestled with big questions. He sought out his church to help him pin down answers, but his congregation failed to understand what he was really asking. Imagine if Steve had been greeted by a different answer from his pastor, one that was an on-ramp to deepen discussion about faith than a conversational dead end. 
One that acknowledged Steve's curiosity about suffering in Africa, as well as Steve's deeper questions about life goals, divine love, and his own place within the world. Imagine if the pastor had replied to 13-year-old Steve, that's a great question. How about you and I and your dad meet for breakfast this week and we'll talk about it? Or imagine if Steve's parents had been attentive enough to initiate a discussion with Steve themselves or that any adult had hit the conversational ball over the net to Steve instead of letting it slowly dribble off the court. Imagine if Steve Jobs had his questions taken seriously by his faith community and had later poured out his entrepreneurial brilliance, not only into furthering high-tech interfaces, but also into furthering the gospel and mobilizing others to respond to needs globally. Our world would surely be different today. I understand completely what the authors are trying to do. They're playing a what-if game of sorts. And while we can't know that that reality and how that would have exactly played out if the pastor's answer had been different, but my hope is that when there are questions, when there are hearts longing, that with the people of generations, that there aren't conversational dead ends. They're met with a willingness to engage the word of God and the spirit of God so that the gifts and the persons of that ability can then be lived and leveraged in everyday life for the sake of a much bigger and true message. See, the author suggests in a way to shift from sage to guide to address the problem together. We should make it a habit to talk about these things together along the road. The spiritual conversations we have should point to truth and emanate from truth, but be side by side, shoulder by shoulder, tackling problems under the love and the wisdom of Jesus. So what can and should be discussed along the road if the goal is a maturing faith? I think it should be things like our values, how to give over get, how to put spirit over self. How let the story that's found in God's word to shape your life. Those can be the things in our conversation of everyday life. Richard Rohr, um, a, a pastor and, and, and thinker about how to, how to pass faith on to the next generation, says that for every maturing person, they need to make five shifts in their life as they grow up. The first shift is this, that life is hard. The second is you're not important. The third is your life is not about you. Four is you're not in control. And five, you're going to die. Whew! So encouraging. But what happens is when we, we make some of those shifts and we realize some of the outcomes of the gospel story, we make a shift this way. Corey, go to the next one. What we realize, it's a shift from ease to difficulty. The life of following Jesus is worth it. And while it's not always going to be ease, we willingly take on difficult things for the sake of the gospel, just like Jesus willingly took on the cross for us. That it's a shift from how, how children care about only themselves. As children, they, they depend on others for that. But as you move towards adulthood, adults care about others. In terms of story, that you're part of the story, but you're not the whole story. So life is not 
completely about you, but you get to play a part in that. Number four, from control to surrender. Man, that's a painful one to learn, isn't it? And number five, from the temporary to the eternal. When we make that shift, we stop living for what we can have now, but in light of the eternity. The resurrection shapes our actions now. That's what the eternal we live for. And so you can live the whole, that whole, that whole shift. How Jesus came because of God sent him to bring us back to himself and how he loves us so much that he died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, cleansed us from our sins, brings us back to God and then rose again so that death does not have the final say. And when we can pass on that faith, when we can make some of these shifts, the role in which we play is the people in our lives and our next generation want to be a part of that more true and eternal story because the message of Jesus works and is lived out in everyday life. Today is Pentecost Sunday. Some of you have been looking for a sage to tell you just what to do. The outcome of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is that he sent the Spirit to be with us, to help us interpret God's word and live that out. See, the Spirit has been sent as a guide for us in everyday life to point us back to the truth. And so with these two things in hand, metaphorically, may we be people who trust God enough to start having spiritual conversations to make some shifts in our own life and help people along the way in their spiritual journey to experience life with God that will last forever. Let me pray for us. God, you are good. And I pray that as we seek to pass down the faith that we don't pass on a faulty faith or a faith that is divorced from the truth of your gospel and your news. Thank you for the example that we have in you. If there is someone today, Lord, who needs to cry out, Lord, save me, may they do it. For the weary and worn out who this seems so daunting, God, may they know that they're not on this journey alone. That's why you sent your spirit to be with us, to be comforter, to point us back to the truth, to bring us together as one. Thank you for that powerful promise and reality. May we live that. May we be about that. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.